Hey everybody, this is Melissa McKenzie, publisher of The American Spectator, coming to you only over audio today because we are having technical difficulties. And of course, with me, as always, is Scott McKay. Scott McKay is the editor-in-chief of The Hayride and Reviver.com, and he's also a contributing editor of The American Spectator. And last week, he pinched hit for me, and we, we had a guest while I wasn't here, George Perry. How'd that go, Scott? Not too badly. Perry was actually really funny, and he talked about uh, uh, the legal interaction with politics that we have lots of lately between the Trump indictments and all the stuff going on with the Biden bribes investigation. And and actually, that's a must-see podcast. Um, so, you know, pull it up and uh, and give it some time, and you'll really get a kick out of it, because uh, it was actually a really, really dis- good discussion. Well, George Perry is just a, a genius. For those of you who are listening, yeah, to he's Scott a Matt, treasure. Yeah, he is a treasure. He's a former state and federal prosecutor, and he has prosecuted some crazy cases over the years and knows the ins and outs of these laws. And I felt so bad that I missed that podcast and I missed that podcast because of my own legal woes. <laughs> and by that, yeah. I mean, I served on a jury. I was at jury duty last week. And it was a capital felony trial. And uh, I was like, please don't pick me. Please don't pick me. Please don't pick me. But I'll tell you why I did get picked, Scott. And it wasn't um, because of any great feat. I just made the cut because a huge percentage of the 88 people in the jury pool that they had disqualified themselves because they felt like they could not be on a jury um, and render fair judgment if the witness, the defense person, did not take the stand in his own defense. I mean, I would say 40 people disqualified themselves because they said they couldn't render honest judgment. And all I could think of is, because they and all of them to a person were saying, well, I don't see, you know, if you're innocent, why, why wouldn't you speak? You know, innocent people want to defend themselves. And I was like, <laughs> uh, okay, I, uh, you know me, I, I don't take anything at face value anymore. Like, uh-huh. ever. yeah. So like, to me, it's like, okay, I really want to get out of jury duty. And they offer you that up on a silver platter and you're like oh okay yeah i'll take that one yeah like, you got a jury duty to say that like oh yeah yeah if you don't def- if you don't take take the stand then I'll, you're you're guilty and they go okay you you get to go and it's like cool right and the other people are like i want to be on this jury so i can convict this guy so <laughs> i'll say whatever i don't know about that I was actually just, that's something that's something Perry said because we were talking about the uh, the jury pool in D.C. and whether Trump can get a fair trial. Of course he can't. No. Uh, right. Exactly. And but Perry's whole deal and it was like, yeah, he's totally he's totally screwed at the trial level in D.C. And not only that, they can't move it out because this judge is going to rehabilitate every single juror that that disqualifies him or herself. Right. You know. Um, you know, but that's like the whole thing. If you really, really, really want to get out of jury duty, they will give you reasons that you can get out. All you have to do is answer answer correctly on these questions. 
Yeah, the thing is, the weird thing was, is that not one question about any of us about our, um, the voir dire was just crazy. The, the Not one question about our what we were professionally, because I was like, I'll be disqualified in five seconds. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, and so I kept waiting to, I, I didn't want to lie, because I would have lied if I, because I, of course, I don't believe that. You know, I'm sitting here. And it turned out that the guy who was on trial was a freaking pedophile. But the, you know, and I, and I was, I literally sat there, Scott, and was like, man, I'm in a real bind here because I hate pedophiles, but I hate the state just as much. So like, right. or nearly as much. And I, I was like, this is a real dilemma for me. So I couldn't lie about that. I, but I didn't think I would have to. I thought that they would ask a question about us professionally or something like that. And I would just be out. But the way they did the numbers, I was in uh, my, my jury number was number 30. And I think I, it was the bad luck of the draw. I think they were worried about disqualifying too many people. And um, they stopped asking questions. The defense barely did any, um, you know, substantive questioning of the, the jury pool. And no expert, like the guy who was on trial was wealthy. I, I He could have afforded to have some, you know, jury expert on and none of that. Um, but anyway, so I, I was sitting here in some of the things that people were saying and they're like, yeah, no, if he, if he doesn't get up there and defend himself and, and you're right, probably some of them were like, yeah, all right, I'm getting out of jury duty. But a lot of them seemed, um, that's what I would say. I'll have, you know, really, Although, you not. I don't I'm know. Not. You show me, you still put me on a jury with a pedophile. And if they can actually prove it, which I'm assuming that they probably could, I mean, you know, I, the, I'll, I'll happily spend time on a jury to get that guy off the streets. Well, we didn't know what he had done. All we knew was that it was a, a, a felony, um, a, a felony at first. So we didn't know what he was being accused of. Okay. And so, I mean, if it's, you know, I'll say this, like, I, like I know people who have gotten caught up in like the kitty porn thing. Right. And basically mm -hmm. what it is, is it's like stuff that gets shared around. And if it shows up on your phone um, and you do something wrong, like in other words, there's a guy here whose brother was like a parish president of, of a pretty decent sized parish parishes or counties in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this guy was a lobbyist has been around the Capitol, whatever. And there was like this, this super dirty video that had like this, you know, it was like a kid and an animal and all, like, it was kind of a funny thing that was supposed to be. I mean, it wasn't really funny. It was gross, but you know, it was kind of a joke. This guy shared it and he had to spend like every dime he had trying to stay out of jail, um, which I thought was a little excessive, but you know, I don't know. I mean, I, the, the, you're, there's a wide variety of stuff within that ambit that you can get um, in lot, like a lot of legal trouble for where without being like a full on pedophile. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, this was not one of those gray cases, Scott. Oh, um, OK. This was a. Let's just put it this way. It, Straight it, up child molestation thing. Oh, uh, uh, this was a serial predator. Ooh. He was a serial child rapist. 
his predilection was boys and he groomed the entire neighborhood and this was a bad dude and we when we went back and the state's case was it couldn't have been more perfect like they were they were two young women attorneys and um i could not have been more impressed like their case was airtight um Good. and really well done however like when it the let me just put it this way the case was traumatic enough that jury members were weeping during the testimony of the grown men who were testifying and the and when like this two or three of the um jurors after it was we all had decided like had breakdowns like i, I and i cried all the way home from the after the the trial you know i kept my shit together around other people and while we were sitting there but the stuff that we heard was so so terrible and the damage this one person did and he i think they knew go, coming in that the because the evidence was so damning that this was going to happen um and they had asked for uh that all the sentencing be done by the judge rather than the jury and so we didn't have to hang out for the sentencing, but I stayed and was taking notes and everything just in case I wanted to write about it, um, you know, later uh, and uh, stayed for the sentencing. And um, the the victim impact statements were, I mean, so devastating that it, it's almost uh, like PTSD level for the people who just heard it, never mind the people who lived it. Lived it. And and so one of the jurors said to the judge, you know, when he came in after we rendered the verdict, which took us about 30 seconds, I said to everybody, I was like, how about we introduce ourselves to each other and then everybody just vote how we feel right now we're at this minute. And it took about 30 seconds. For, it was like guilty. Everybody's like guilty. And, um, you know, I, I, I had never, I've never served on a jury and I had not, and I, I you know, prayed after the, you know, after getting chosen, because I was like, ah, you know, this is a felony trial, you know, please don't make this be close. You know, I don't want to be in a position where I'm having to decide somebody's fate and it's difficult to do so. You know, that's terrible. Um, there was not a, that was not a problem in this case yeah, at all. Right. That's a little different this time. This, this time it was like, oh, can there be a firing squad and can I have a gun? Um, <laughs> You know, I, that's how I felt after this trial. And I would not, and I can say that like with a clean conscience that I, anybody who would participate in the the end of this dude would be doing the world a big favor. But anyway, the, the, the everybody was pretty traumatized. But one of the jurors said to the judge, I was like, oh, Dan, uh, said, you're going to do the right thing, right? <laughs> Like said, like. I guess you get to say that as a juror, right? Yeah, and he's like, um, he goes, "I think that uh, you'll see justice today," is what he said. But the, I mean, the, it, it was like it was bad. 
So that was an unexpected thing. First off, I'd never, you know, this isn't like traffic court or something. The the, the first time I'm ever on a jury and I'm like, I have PTSD from, a, you know, right. being a jurist uh, or a jury member on this case. And this is the first case I've ever been on. I will say this, that, you know, as far as like um, restoring some faith in the system, the, the jury selection process was a little unnerving because there were a lot of people who were woefully inadequate on their civics. Um, but the the trial itself um, really, you know, brought home how important it is to have one, a good defense um, for whoever the person is and whatever they've done and um, why why we have these type of situations, why there's not just one person deciding the fate of someone. Um, and, and also, um, you know, looking around at the, my fellow jury members and how seriously everybody took the process and everything, uh, that was also encouraging. Um, and, but to your point about like Trump, uh, in certain venues, in certain places, you know, there's no justice because the, um, because the the defendant can't get a jury of his peers right and and so like and i i fear because so many places like in this case this guy ha had a jury of his peers and um and they found him want wanting in a lot of different ways um but the it's imperative for one, for there to be civics education. So people know what it means to be a good jury member, you know, that they even can, can follow the law. And then beyond that, um, you know, that the person who is on trial can have any, have a chance to, you know, cause they're innocent until they're proven guilty. They have to be proven guilty. And, but that's not the case anymore in so many places. And it's deeply troubling and it's causing lack of faith in the legal system. And um, so, you know, every once in a while, though, justice is done. And for the people listening, you know, there was a jury who put a very bad man away for life um, in Texas. And that was the just thing. And um, but it's, a you know. We can't have the we can't have mob rule, and we cannot have the situation that we have in so many places right now. Where, I mean, part of the I don't like I would not even want to go into the dis I don't even want to go into the district anymore, like as a person because if because of you know somebody making something up you know you see these people who were on January sixth who were just walking around some people who weren't even in town like the the guy you know the proud boys dude who wasn't even in dc and they're right. pulling these legal things you know fantasies out of the hat and convicting him in a place where he's easily convicted um you know of an insurrection i guess sedition and all the stuff that they're saying it's just absurd and the bigger problem is that so many Americans are okay with it. And this is why, you know, you think that the jury was looking for excuses to get off the case. I don't necessarily think that's true. 
I think that might've been it, true for a couple of them, but there's so many people who don't believe in the basic presumption of innocence, the, the basic that they, you know, it doesn't mean you're guilty if you don't take the stand in your own defense, that sometimes the best defense is to say nothing. And um, who have no civics education and if they think you don't like you or think you're a bad person, believe you should be convicted and don't care um, just because their own prejudices. And well, okay. Let, let's remember this. The vast majority of what people know about the criminal justice system comes from watching cop shows. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like that is how the vast majority of folks perceive the justice system mm -hmm. um, is, you know, they watch the FBI show and they watch, uh, you know, all these different, uh, these different things. And it, it used to be that the cop shows and the lawyer shows that you watched were, um, you know, strove for some degree of realism, right? Like the old Perry Mason show. Um, and, and even to some extent, like the Matlock show, which it was always ridiculous at the end, how Matlock would get the guy to admit on the mm -hmm. stand, like, you know, they, they crack the entire case. That part was stupid, but like the rest of the show would be pretty realistic in terms of, you know, what lawyers do and what judges do and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, the, the, the cop shows and the lawyer shows are no longer even remotely close to realistic anymore. Um, and so people don't like, they don't understand anything that happens until they actually get to the court system. And part of that is, um, the courts are so full of things now with as litigious a society as we are and as many, you know, criminal cases that these courts have um, that it's a ton of just sitting around and waiting. And so you can't really depict that realistically and, and get ratings at all. Um, and, and so it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a, a witch's brew designed uh, almost to, uh, to, to create, sort of inaction and, and disengagement from the public. So, you know, when you do see examples of the system working, it's, it's, it's a great thing. Um, and of course, where politics is involved, which is what this Trump, uh, these, all of these Trump indictments are, because it's not like he's been uh, indicted in any red jurisdictions or districts. Um, you know, I mean, politics is, is being used to weaponize the justice system not just on Trump, but all of his other defendants in Atlanta and all of the January 6th people and some of these other folks, um, you know, which is something that has to be fixed. And, you know, Perry and I talked about it a good bit last week. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I, you're not going to have a, an enormous amount of civic engagement and civics knowledge uh, in a public that is grossly misinformed all the time on these issues. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the kind of the, some of the stuff that came out of potential jurors mouth were, was so unnerved me, me that I was like, what the actual hell where, you know, like I was like, what? Um, and, and I thought these people need empathy training. You know, like I could, I could think of 10 reasons right off the top of my head why it would be in a defendant's interest not to testify and that these people couldn't even fathom that idea. I was like, you know, 
with each one of them, I could, you know, come up for, you know, with a reason. So anyway, that was, that was distressing. I think I'm going to write about that because it, it is something that is, um, you know, like it, when we talk about education, right, there's so many parts and pieces of education that um, are happening at crazy levels. So for example, my kids can take uh, AP um, calculus B, right? Like really almost the, the next stop in calculus is theoretical, right? You can get that high of math in high school, but we have people who don't have basic civics understanding, can't make themselves their own meal, can't balance their checkbook, you know, don't know, just basic living things. And I'm like, there should be a mock trial for every single kid who goes through high school. It shouldn't just be for the debate team. They should, you know, understand the justice system from an experience in an experiential way. Well, and given how many public high schools are simply, you know, uh, uh, proton accelerators for the criminal justice system, they absolutely should do that, right? Like, hey, this is you in a couple of years. And right. half the kids are like, that's eh, just like juvie up in there. Mm -hmm. Well, did you see that those kids who had, I can't remember what crime they committed to boys. And they were like, well, we just get slaps on the wrist. They like killed the guy. They mm -hmm. um, hit him on the side of the road, I think is what they did and kept driving didn't render aid and whatever and they're like completely like yeah they'll get yeah no big deal and they're both being tried as adults yeah um this is a real which, problem which was a, kind of a real unpleasant surprise for them right yeah like hey that's not how this is supposed to work i'm supposed to get let out when i'm 21 and it's like well except you really screwed it up this time mm -hmm. and now they're gonna get you yeah. Um, you know, and the juvenile justice thing is that's a real kind of sticky problem because, um, like for example, all of these kind of carjacking gangs that run in all of these cities, mm -hmm. right. Where, I mean, you know, the carjacking thing is tied to a chop shop operation and, you know, it's all about get the car real quick, go and, and, uh, you know, chop it up and, and get the parts and, and get it sold fast so mm -hmm. that like the cops have absolutely no, um, no ability to do anything about it. Right. Uh, and they use kids mm -hmm. as carjackers mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, use, I mean, an adult who carjacks somebody, they're going away for 20 years. Um, but, you know, you use kids who've been in and out of juvie and you get them as carjackers and they work for the chop shop gang. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, well, if you get pinched, they'll let you out by the time you're 21, you know, so you're 16, 17 and it's cool. And they never charge carjackers as adults, mm -hmm. um, you know, until something terrible happens, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, 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 we're in a, a position now with the way things are going in lefty states where um, the crime rates are surging and there's just no feedback loop. You know, we are all seeing these criminal gangs just going in, you know, stealing everything and then turning um, cities like San Francisco and Philadelphia and other places into these kind of dystopian hell holes 
where um, there's no no nice places anymore. There's nothing nothing to do because no, everybody's afraid. I just saw this video yesterday of this girl who had everything. She went in to get a, a coffee, I think, from Starbucks or something. And while she was in there, her whole life had been stolen. She was moving to Bali and uh, her suitcase, all of her electronics, her passport, everything, her money, everything stolen out of the back seat. And the the smash and grabs and the, you know, the car vehicle break-ins are just so routine. And, yeah. and nobody can defend themselves. Um, and so when you have this kind of upside down lawlessness, just rampant, um, it completely discourages the law abiding and it's contributing to this kind of shaking out, you know, um, one of my daughter's friends who's a single guy working at a tech company living in San Francisco, but he said, I couldn't leave my apartment. I couldn't leave my house. It wasn't safe. And there was nothing to do because downtown was dead because nobody goes there because it's not safe. And uh, so you have all these, um, you know, Democrats making decisions for the, their constituencies. I mean, Gavin Newsom ruined San Francisco. Now he's ruined California. And th this guy is trying to make himself presidential i think he's going to be the presidential nominee for the democrats and he has gutted california and um they're surviving on on the fumes of yesteryear but they haven't even completely uh, experienced the um commercial leasing uh implosion that's about to happen and you know, Democrats are going to export this guy and make him the the face of the national, de you know, the de Democratic Party. I mean, this is who the new Democrat is, a complete radical. And um, so, you know, he and he's up to more shenanigans. You said you told be told me before we got on this podcast, which I hadn't seen because I wasn't paying attention to the news over the weekend, that he had nominated or whatever Diane Feinstein's uh um replacement can we just talk about her for a second because I've seen uh, a lot of hagiography hey around this woman and uh, uh, right I've got a, well okay I've, so, I've got a couple of problems with her <laughs> so okay so uh the new senator from California who just got appointed who replaces yeah. Diane Feinstein is a woman named LaFonza Butler that's L-A-P-H-O-N-Z-A, mm -hmm. um, who is actually lives in Maryland, not California. Okay. Um, uh, in fact, up until this morning, she listed Maryland as her residence on her Twitter account. <laughs> and there's an F uh, FEC filing from a month ago where I guess she contributed money to somebody and listed Maryland as her home address uh, as of that. Um but she's the president of Emily's List, uh, and she's an SEIU organizer. You know, so I, I mean, like this is, and and she is the first uh, openly black lesbian uh, in the U.S. Senate. So um, you know, which Gavin Newsom had said uh, that when he was uh, going to have a chance to appoint. California's next senator, because everybody's known that Feinstein wasn't long for the world for a long time. And then, of course, she died last week, finally. Um, 
that he was going to appoint a black woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and this got him in a lot of trouble because there's a black woman who is qualified for the job, Barbara Lee, who's been a congressman from San Francisco forever, uh, who is running. And Newsom decided, well, I'm going to appoint a black woman, but not that black woman. Mm -hmm. um, and so Barbara Lee's camp is furious. Mm -hmm. uh, and now he's appointed this LaFonza Butler woman as the mm -hmm. uh, as the center. And so this is what you get into when it's the whole racial bean counting business, yeah. uh, which is something that the Democrats just are there. At this point, they built their whole party around it. Right. Um, and it's, you know, the, you saw this with Biden when he appointed uh, Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, who was completely unqualified and proved it when she got asked what a woman is mm -hmm. in uh, in her confirmation hearings. And so I'm not a biologist. Right. Mm -hmm. Anybody who has that answer to that question rather than, well, a woman is an adult female. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like you're not qualified to really hold any public office, much less a Supreme Court justice. Um, you know, and so what you have now is an SEIU, Emily's List radical uh, lobbyist, essentially, who's going to be a senator from California, who doesn't even live in California and hasn't lived in California for a very long time. Can I say the plus side of that? I mean, there's plenty, yeah, there's plenty of pluses, but go ahead. So one of the pluses is that unlike Diane Feinstein, she won't be a Chinese agent. Hopefully. Oh, are you sure? No, I'm not sure, but I'm going to just All let right. me finish and then you can okay. pick it up. You're just apart. assuming that she won't be a Chinese agent. Yeah, but I mean, one of the things that drove me crazy about Feinstein is it was clear that, um, the, you know, she had a driver, what, for 25 years who was a uh, spy for China, her yeah. chief of staff spy for China. Her whole her whole operation in, in California was you know, completely overrun with spies from China, which leads. You know, and she and her husband made their money doing deals with the Chinese. Oh, exactly. And so, and she, and she's on what the Foreign Relations Committee. Oh yeah. And so here's this. I mean, one. Diane Feinstein, more than anybody else, is one responsible for China getting most favored nation trade status. Right. So, like, I mean, I view her legacy as one as anti-American American, yeah. and objectively evil. Absolutely. So, so like, you know, I'm seeing all these people around some people, blah, 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 and talking about her. And I'm like, no, this woman was no. a bad person for America. And then- I, I'll, look, I'll say the word. I think she was a traitor. Well, I, I you think, know- I think yeah. she was a traitor. I think she sold us out more than anybody else. Dianne Feinstein is the person responsible for- America losing its place in the world as the global, uh, you know, economic military superpower. Uh, Diane Feinstein is is of all of the people that you could point to. She is the single most responsible because she has been in China's camp on everything. She's a classic example of an American politician who got bought up and used to uh, promote an agenda that that is anti-American in all its nature. Yeah. Um, and so now I have absolutely nothing whatsoever to say. Uh, and, you know, at some point, maybe I'll go pee on her grave. That's that's how disgusted with Diane Feinstein I am. Uh, and, you know, you shouldn't speak ill of the dead. Well, 
I'm speaking the same ill I spoke when she was alive. So I'm consistent and I'll, you know, I, I, I'll ride with that. Well, the uh, thing is, like, she she makes, what, 200,000 a year as a senator. Mm -hmm. She died with 204 million plus right. 650 million plus in property and a private jet that her three lovely daughters, they're all haggling over all this now. Right. How does a person, you know, you know, uh, Harry Reid went into the Senate as a pauper and came out a fabulously wealthy man. Diane Feinstein came in as, you know, the cute girl from San Francisco or something and came out fabulously wealthy and, um, you know, with a shrug. I want to say she had plenty of money before she got to the Senate, though, because yeah. it was money that made her mayor of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, you know, like she and the husband were hogs at the trough from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, like this, she may not be the classic case of like a Harry Reid who, you know, mm -hmm. just grifted his way in all that money when he got to the Senate or, or Joe Biden for that example, for that matter. Um, she may not be that because there was money coming in, but the money was I'm like, I can't remember. It was um, was it Jiang Zemin? who was the, the the president before the current guy. Um, and she was buddies with him when he was mayor of Shanghai, I think it was. Um, and they did all kinds of, you know, above the table deals between the city of San Francisco and the city of Shanghai. And of course, the principals in those things got rich as hell under the table. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, but she was involved in that before she even got to the Senate. And the minute she got to the Senate, she became, you know, China Incorporated's uh, official U.S. senator um, and had fueled all of those trade deals that sold out the American people. Um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, an utter crook. Yeah. Well, and so my, my but, thought- But let's not that assume that it doesn't get worse with, right. with you know, putting the SEIU into the Senate. Well, right. Well, I mean, at least it's an American, uh, you know, union. I mean, I, I hate to be grasping at, you know, straws here, but- <laughs> Which which you are. <laughs> but I mean, it seems to me, well, I am, but it's like, okay, so she's from Maryland. Uh, she's- um, American and she's part of a union. She loves abortion. Oh, that's, you know, gotta be a given. Um, and, uh, but, uh, I don't I, know. I'll put it to you like this. I think what, what Newsom has done is he's replaced a foreign enemy with a domestic enemy in the mm, U S. Okay. Um, I and I, I'm, I'm not going to say that that's better. Um, yeah. It, it may be, it may not. I think the votes will remain exactly the same. Um, of course, that's true. Yeah. You know, and, you know, how long this lasts, is this, is this somebody who's going to, you know, attempt to run for re-election, which will even further muddy the waters? Because what do you got? You got Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, and, and Barbara Lee all running for that Senate seat uh, next year, which is like, I mean, you know, it's it's basically the electoral version of the Iran-Iraq war. And I feel like Henry Kissinger, why can't they all lose? Right. So who cares? I mean, like, really, like you're going to you're going to get a senator from California who is 
um, as bad as the senators from California have been for an exceptionally long time. Like, I can't remember the last senator from California who wasn't an utter and complete disaster, right? Barbara Boxer was that bad. Dianne Feinstein was that bad. Kamala Harris was that bad. This guy Padilla, who's there right now, is that bad. Um, uh, Xavier Becerra, wasn't Becerra a senator for a brief period of time? And he's a total disaster. I mean, you know, I, like I, I and Bar Boxer and Feinstein were the senators from there for like a couple of decades that they were both up in there. Um, I mean, you got to go back to maybe the 1990s. And even then, I can't I, I can't really think of anybody who was good. From California, who was a senator. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, I can't think of the last. <laughs> I'm going back to when I was a kid and I can't think of senators from California who didn't suck. Well, senators generally suck. So that's a that's a steep ask. And then you layer on California and you layer on the psychosis that's in that state. And, you know, you're that's some um, deep fishing there. Pete <laughs> Wilson was Pete Wilson a senator or was he governor? He was governor. Duke Magian know. was governor. I can't remember who who any of these guys were senators. <laughs> totally drawing a blank. I'm gonna have to go look it up. But I mean, yeah, they, I mean, we've had nothing but awful senators from California. This well, is then maybe they one. need someone from Maryland. Make it better. Okay, bring her to get somebody who's literate that can be a senator. Okay, we need to take a break, folks, and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, we're back during our break. Uh, uh, Scott McKay, ever the researcher and writer, did some digging about our new, um, our newest Crown Senator. What did you find, Scott? Okay, so, uh, and this is not like digging. I'm just looking at Wikipedia. Okay. Um, <laughs> so LaFonza Butler... The new senator from California is not from California, as we mentioned. She actually, she was born in Magnolia, Mississippi, um, graduated from Jackson State University um, and began a, like she started out as a union organizer for nurses in Baltimore and Milwaukee. And then she was a union organizer for janitors in Philadelphia. And then in hospital workers in New Haven, Connecticut, and in 2009 she moved to California, and you know organizing in-home caregivers and nurses, and ended up moving up into management at the SEIU. Um, she was elected uh, president of the California SEIU State Council in 2013. You know, president of an SEIU local. Jerry Brown appointed her to the uh, Board of Regents for the University of California in 2018, but she resigned in 2021 from that job. Um, uh, and then she joined uh, a company called SCRB Strategies, which I guess is a Democrat political consulting firm, um, uh, worked in Kamala Harris's 2020 presidential campaign, which was a humdinger of, a, of an organization uh and then uh she's done work for uber uh basically as a go-between between uber and organized labor which i guess means that uber was paying uh this woman basically protection money to keep from having the uber drivers organized mm -hmm. um 
and uh, she's buddies with Kamala Harris, and uh, she's currently, or at least, I don't know if she's currently is, but in 2020, she left this SCRB company to join Airbnb as the director of public policy and campaigns in North America, and then uh, uh, now president of Emily's List. Wow. So, like, never been elected to anything, um, never really had any real job experience other than as a community organizer for unions and as SEIU in particular. Um, uh, and, you know, personal life for Butler is a lesbian. She and her partner, Neneki Lee, have a daughter. They moved to Maryland in 2021 when she assumed the presidency of Emily's List. Governor Newsom's office stated Butler would re-register to vote in California before taking office as a senator. So she's that's just to crazy. Move back to California. That's just crazy that she, I I had the impression Scott that that she had was in Maryland because in anticipation of this or something, not that she had moved to Maryland in 2021. Yeah, we're almost at 2024. So she like established a home and is not at all a resident of California. That's correct. What the? Yeah. So California's got 40 something million people and um, can't find one. Can't find anybody that is more qualified than an SEIU union leader and uh, Emily's List president uh, who lives on the opposite side of the country. Wow. I, I mean, like I said on Twitter when this happened, like this is the end of him as a presidential candidate. You think uh, so? I, I, I don't know how, I don't know how you get past that um, because on every single aspect of this, this appointment is an utter failure in front of the, you know, sort of middle American voter. Yeah, right. but does that matter though? To I, I mean, think it I think it does. Like I think it does because uh I mean other than uh other than black women, which actually the Democrat Party is is uh unmarried white women and black women are basically all that the Democrat Party is going for right now. Mm-hmm. So may you know, maybe this is a way to sort of uh pander to those groups and black women in particular um but in every other respect uh i mean the people of california got to be furious about this like it's not a californian right like i mean you know and and so i would i mean i would think hispanics in california have got to be spitting mad over this um but maybe not you know i mean i i don't know how many of them are actually all that even care about politics um I guess they just vote the way they're told, but yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that with the constituency of the Democrats at this point, that and everything is so tribal. Uh, I have given up believing that most Americans um, are very thoughtful about this at all. Well, I don't disagree with that. I just at some look, it takes a lot of input and energy to keep a political machine running. Um, and you know, things like this tend to drain the fuel out of the machine, you know, like the machine has to be seen as, um, as benefiting people, 
um, <laughs> or else people lose kind of enthusiasm for the machine. Mm-hmm. And something like this, I think, is, um, you know, intense. That's like sugar in the gas tank. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's not like it's not like there's a lot of resume where Gavin Newsom's concerned anyway. I mean, he hasn't benefited anybody as governor of California. He's glib and, you know, he looks like he ought to be on TV. But other than that, I mean, it's kind of hard to find anything that recommends Gavin Newsom for the current office he holds, much less higher office. Um, But, you know, the big issue with him is his ego is so big that I don't think he would be a proper puppet for the Obama machine. Um, And that's the reason why he keeps, you know, saying that he's out for 2024. And I actually believe him because it seems to me that Gavin Newsom is the guy who, you know, is waiting for the Obama machine to collapse so that he can pick up the pieces and start his own little cult of personality. Um, so you uh, think that they're going to that they're going to stick with Biden and that the Democrats play is going to be I just, counting on the justice system to convict uh, Trump of some sort of felony. And then, well, it, I'll admit that it sounds stupid. OK, um, but I don't find anything else. Right. Like, I mean, I think what they would like to do is ride Biden to January of 25, right? And then and then do whatever after that. Um, what do you mean ride Biden until Just, you know, like run another campaign. He, like hope basement. he lives? I, I, yeah. I, I think, you know, another campaign from the basement and just, you know, come up with some hook or crook to get him reelected. Because, I mean, if you look, if you look at these guys all, they're actually perfectly fine with what they have right now. Like, you know, they will they will go on and on and on about how fabulously successful a president Joe Biden is and how Mm -hmm. unfair it is that nobody appreciates him. Like (laughs) they they actually this is actually the Democrat take on Joe Biden. Right. Which, you know, is it's nuts. I mean, that you know, like they're actually are out there touting Bidenomics. Right. Um, I mean, so and I think that it's not that they have this great love for him. It's that they're looking around and they don't have any better options Um, because Mm -hmm. the, the Obama machine runs the Democratic party, plain and simple. And uh, without Michelle Obama getting in, which honestly, the woman doesn't want it. She doesn't want it. And you are not going to tell her what to do. Uh, So, I mean, she's turned them down a million times and that's it. They're not trying anymore. So they're stuck without Biden. They're stuck with Kamala Harris. Who will lose? Mm-hmm. Because that machine will not uh, function at full force with Kamala Harris as uh, as the, the the front of that ticket. You know, it, it'll break down in Michigan. It'll break down in Wisconsin. It'll break down in Arizona. It'll break down in Nevada. You're just not going to be able to push Kamala Harris as your Democrat nominee for president and win. So, but apparently you can with Biden. So they're stuck with Biden. And, you know, you're seeing, and I'll be honest, I see all kinds of potentially um, nefarious doings with this business of RFK Jr. uh, now saying he's going to run as an independent. 
And then saying, what's that? Well, I mean, regarding that, you know, there's, there's a couple pieces up at the American Spectator written by a couple of different um, writers with different takes about this. What's your, what's your take on this, Scott? Do you well, think so uh, he said yesterday or today that his internal polling shows that he's pulling more votes from Trump than he is from Biden. Uh, Do you think that's true? Not particularly, but I totally understand why he would say it. Um, I mean, this is somebody that his dad and his uncle have both been assassinated. And, uh, you know, based on that, he figured it was going to be a pretty easy deal to get Secret Service protection as a presidential candidate. And they told him no, mm-hmm. which is basically an open invitation to people to take pot shots at him. And so he's now going to run as an independent because he's been so poorly treated inside the Democrat Party. Um, and so he says, hey, I pull more votes from Trump than Biden. Please don't kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, because I don't believe that RFK Jr., who is a an old school liberal of the first order. Right. Um, I don't believe that he pulls more votes from Trump than Biden. I don't believe that because I don't believe to believe that you would have to believe that the Obama machine is the monolithic choice of Democrat voters, particularly in all of these states in, say, the Rust Belt, mm-hmm. like that they've already lost all of the old union Democrats in a Michigan, a Wisconsin, a Pennsylvania, an Iowa, a, a Indiana, all these other places. OK, mm-hmm. like they've already lost them all. Trump's got all of those voters, and yet Democrats are still either competitive or winning in those states. I don't buy that. And those people, you know, the old union Democrat uh, crowd, those are Kennedy Democrats. So mm-hmm. don't tell me that that uh, that he's going to pull all those people away from Trump when they clearly voted for Biden in 2020. I'm just I'm not here believing that. Well, the, the thing is, is he doesn't have to pull that many from trump does he to undermine you know well it depends i mean you know like if he's let's say he pulls five percent of the vote if he pulls three percent from biden and two percent from trump it could very well make the difference in a wisconsin or a michigan or a georgia or an arizona or a nevada or a pennsylvania like it could make a difference in those places Hmm. although i don't think he would factor in georgia much but i do think in the in rust belt states where you have a lot of older voters who are democrats um you know there i mean the kennedy brand is still big with those guys uh you know and and let's face it other than the vaccines and some of this other stuff rfk jr's policy platform is an old school liberal policy platform Okay, that's it. That is not something that Trump voters are going to be all that fired up about. Trump voters like him fine as a Democrat alternative to Biden. You know, that's an Operation Chaos type of thing. Mm -hmm. But as opposed to, you know, your vote for that guy instead of instead of a Republican, whether it's Trump or whoever. No, that's not going to happen. So, you know, RFK Jr. may say he has internal polling to that effect. My mm-hmm. guess is if you dug into that poll, you'd find out that it's that it's it's not overly legitimate. Hmm. That's just my take. 
I don't really have a lot to back it other than what I know about politics. And what I know about mm -hmm. politics is RFK Jr.'s brand is that he's an old school liberal who's mm -hmm. been left behind by the kind of machine leftists in the Democrat Party. Um, and if he runs as a third party presidential candidate, you know, his market is old school liberals. It's mm -hmm. not populist conservatives. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that the never Trump crowd who would take a look at RFK Jr. is going to shortly find that, you know, his stuff is just as noxious to them as as Trump is, um, because, you know, his thing is, is like he represents at least a fraction of the Democrat electorate who opposes the uniparty. And the never Trump crowd is the Republican uniparty. Mm -hmm. But they're not particularly bright. So, I mean, this is why I think that some of them would happily vote for uh, Kennedy. And again, this is just my kind of gut instinct. Um, I would say the only thing stopping that is if they're really super mega pro Ukraine. But except for like the Bill Crystals and the hardcore neocons who are all for, you know, a bloodbath in Ukraine and Russia. Um, You're not going to shake those guys off of Biden. I mean, those are, those well, are, Biden, yes, those that's, are Biden people now. Those are Biden people now. But I'm talking about the middle of the rotors, people, the independents who, because there has been polling that shows that um, if, Trump actually gets convicted in any of these cases that he will lose independence. And so Kennedy may be right that if if Trump gets a conviction, that some of the independents who were staying with him will be like, well, he was found guilty in the court of law, and we know that must be true, <laughs> you know? Well, and uh, again, it's going to depend on those trials. Right. Right. Well, because, the thing is, because is that if the trials are clearly, you know, show trials and kangaroo courts, then I've, you know, that I don't know how much of that has been factored into the polling. Yeah, uh, I don't know either. But the thing is, is that like, all there's only one to two percent of voters who are deciding these presidential elections at this point, and so like we're yeah. talking, we're talking the margins everywhere. A few, well, no, a few absolutely. Hundred, a few hundred people here and there, and peeling off a couple of those independents. Um, and and the other thing is, is all that we all that the Democrats need, which is why they would prefer a Trump to, although that the polling is making that difficult for them. But I think why they wanted they you know kneecapped DeSantis so hard was they didn't want someone who that could plausibly win. And right. they think that Trump is an implausible, impossible candidate to so many people that they can do all of the fraud that they are going to do. And it and they can lie like they did the first time when Biden got elected and somehow got millions and millions and you know whatever, billions of votes for Biden. Um, that they can do that against Trump and only Trump. That's my theory. And that no, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that's correct. I think that is their electoral strategy at this point. Yeah. And um, so like they get one conviction and they peel off even the slimmest number of independents and that's enough to plausibly give it to Biden. That's and, and if they can, and those, if those votes peel off and they go to JFK jr. Great. Well, 
okay. Um, the fly in that ointment is, okay. uh, you know, it. Okay, in 2020, when you're the opposition and you're trying to knock Trump off, um, there's sort of one set of standards to pull your people to the polls. In 2024, when you're running on a four-year record um, after making all these promises to these people, and then you're trying to fire that machine up and turn the vote out, um, because it's all turnout on the Democrat side. They don't try to persuade anybody anymore. That's really the question, right? Like, mm -hmm. can that machine run at a high enough level um, to, to crank out all of those votes in a Wayne County or in Fulton County or mm -hmm. in, you know, Clark County in Nevada or Maricopa or some of these places? Well, clearly they can. They did it during the midterms again. Well, I get that. OK, but and the Republicans haven't done anything to stop it. And in places like Michigan, like you mentioned, in Wayne County, Gretchen Whitmer wouldn't have gotten elected without that machine in Wayne County. Oh. And the thing and the thing is, is that now that she's in charge and that there's a Democrat secretary of state, the chances of a Republican winning are in slim mill and, and void. Well, and, and that's the case in a lot of places. Let's remember, we're still a year out and. Yeah. There can be all kinds of bad things that happen between now and this time next year. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, in fact, that's, I mean, the expectation at this point has got to be that that is what's going to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's economics, whether it's war, whether it's, I mean, the optics of the guy currently in office mm -hmm. who, I mean, they put him on another national news interview yet again. And he froze up and offered up a bunch of word salads. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, it was yet again, a guy who is clearly non-compost mentis talking yeah. to the cameras. Mm -hmm. And it is a matter of time before he is in a press, you know, some sort of press avail where there's a pool of reporters rather than just, you know, so a one-on-one -on -one interview that can be edited. And he's going to say something or do something that makes him utterly unelectable. Um, you know, whether it's F words or N words or whatever else, it's entirely possible. Now, you know, tr Trump used MF for the other day that wasn't overly smart um, because I think if he was able to hold himself to a significantly higher standard of communication, it would be uh, very much to his advantage just to say, hey, that guy is you know, has completely lost it. And I'm still in possession of all my faculties. I'm a better choice. Well, and, I mean, he is still in possession of his faculties. I mean, yeah, he is, but you can't, you can't give be given a speech and then say MF -er in front of the audience and, you know, the TV cameras. Is that like, true? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, asking, he said is, it. He was talking true. about, you know, what do you do to keep a guy off of, uh, out of the white house? Who's, winning all the polls, whatever, you indict the mf -er. And it's like, mm. okay, no, don't say that, right? Like, you know, you can't be this furious guy. You have to kind of be a happy warrior. You can recount all the things they're doing to you, but you got to have a smile on your face and say, and they ain't beat me yet. Like, that's how you handle that. Mm -hmm. um, instead, you know, you can't, you can't be dark and angry and all of those things. And 
I don't blame Trump for being that way because I am that way. Um, but if you want to be president, you need to be the guy that reassures everybody. Hey, you know, like, yeah, we all know how bad it is, but it doesn't have to be this bad. Make me president and I'll fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that is the answer. And, uh, you know, we'll see whether he can sort of adopt that kind of sunny personality. He, I mean, he had some of that in 16, you know, I mean, Trump was funny. And, you know, he was caustic, but I mean, it was, it was a like, he was much more vibrant and it was a lot more fun to be mm -hmm. for Trump than it was for Hillary Clinton. Um, and I think that probably will still be true in 2024, because what's fun about Joe Biden and what's fun about Kamala Harris? And really, if you take those two out of the picture and somebody else were to get in, like what's fun about any of those people? Because right now, I don't think it's Gavin Newsom. But if you take Gavin Newsom out of the mix, like, 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 who is it? You can't run Peabot. Um, you can't run Gretchen Whitmer, I don't think. Oh, uh, you can. But the, the if they want to win. It's the I'm same sure. result as Kamala Harris, is my point. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I still. Um, J.B. Pritzker, and we can have a referendum on transgenderism when he runs for president. I mean, let's bring it on. Well, that bring that on. I think you know? that I think that Gavin Newsom is just the type of guy that. Um, yeah, but he keeps saying he's not going to do it. Is the point? He keeps saying that and keeps doing all the things that presidential candidates do. Well, a presidential candidate would not have appointed LaFonza Butler as a. Yes. I actually think they, uh, given the Democratic Party, I actually think they would, and and I don't necessarily think that that is going to be a ding on him with the people he wants. Well, he, I, he, he in will, that narrow thing, I don't disagree with you, but it, as a presidential candidate, I do. Now, if you would look. The way you do this, if you're Newsom and you really want to do something, is you appoint some woke CEO from Silicon Valley or from L.A. or something uh, who, you know, maybe it's a white woman. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's some, no, uh, I, you know, I think some guy from. I think they're completely wrong here. Well, I but think... the point is, the point is, is that you're making yourself uh you're making yourself marketable to centrist type people. He doesn't need centrist. Uh, I think he, he needs does. every single pissed off single woman, black woman uh, to vote. That's that's what the Democrats need to win. They're not going for any other constituency because it, the margins are so slim. They've lost those people. They will keep the white liberals. White yeah, but liberals. They haven't lost the Melissa. They haven't lost the Hispanics. They're still over fifty with the Hispanics, but that's where they're in trouble. It's and they're they're, they're starting to get to be in trouble with black men too. Right. Like you have to stop the bleeding, and one of the ways to do that is to have. And actually, the other problem they have is with Asian Americans. Whether it's, you know, whether it's people, you know, Indians and Pakistanis or Chinese and Koreans and Japanese. I mean, like they're bleeding in all of those places, too. So like the uh -huh. whole point is, it's like, well, we're going to lock up the single women, whether black or white or whatever. He'll um, make he'll leave make everybody his... else. And the problem is, is that the demographics are bad, bad when you do that. He'll make him make his V be a Hispanic woman. 
He's shored up the blacks with his Senate choice. He's shored up women with that. And, and it's a year from now and people will forget. Nobody will care. The, it's a very calculated thing. I don't I, I, So I, think, I don't know. I think, he got, I think he got caught in a bind when he made that pledge that he was going to appoint a black woman. Um, because remember, this is months and months ago that this happened. And at the time, everybody just figured that Feinstein was going to leave the Senate because she couldn't remember. She couldn't vote in the Judiciary Committee because she had shingles. Right. right? And so everyone was like, OK, well, she's got to go. And so you're going to replace her. And like Newsom goes, and says, well, I got to appoint a black woman for that mm -hmm. um, because, you know, yeah, OK, he's trying to do all this stuff. But the problem is Barbara Lee goes and gets in the race. And then everybody starts beating Newsom up over the fact that, well, you're just going to appoint Barbara Lee, so we're not even going to have an election. Mm -hmm. And then he says, uh, okay, well, it won't be Barbara Lee, but it will be a black woman. And I, I, in other words, I think this guy has made such a mess of this mm. that now he's, I mean, he can't even find anybody domestic because the other option was Karen Bass, who my guess is wouldn't take it because she's right. the mayor of LA, which is a better right. gig than an interim Senate job that you have to run against a million people for. Right. Hold on to it. Well, so I mean, like, we'll see. I just got this job and I'm not leaving. So now you got nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you could be totally right. I mean, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Like this, right. it, you know, what, as I've said before, El, one of our writers is Ellie Gardy is writing a, the definitive book on this guy. And I've learned so many things, not the least of which is that really nobody likes him anywhere. No. But that no, doesn't seem to him. factor into, um, except for women who are swooning and see him from a distance. And in a presidential, that's what you need. Well, and, I, I'm not going to deny it's helpful. Um, you know, but you, you, there, there has to be some, I mean, look, they swooned over JFK. Okay. Um, JFK had, and I, you know, on balance, I would say my opinion of him was negative, but there was some substance to JFK, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he was charismatic and he was, you know, he loses the debate to Nixon on the radio, but wins it on TV, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, JFK was a guy who took Eisenhower's warning about the military industrial complex seriously and was not friendly to it. He was a guy that was all about cutting taxes to grow the economy, which was an amazing amount of substance. Uh, he was a guy who, you know, if you'll recall, dispatched Daniel Patrick Moynihan to go and research the welfare state and see, you know, where the problems were. And they put out this, you know, um, groundbreaking report that has more resonance now than it did back then. And, you know, he, he made a lot of the civil rights crowd upset because the, the report actually talked about how, you know, look, you got to have fathers in the home or else, you you know, you're going to have social dysfunction and the whole bit. Like there was a lot to JFK. I mean, that, that was a liberalism that actually was about trying to solve problems. They weren't particularly good at it, but at least they tried. Mm -hmm. Today's left is about monetizing those problems rather than solving them. Um you know, whether that's politically or, or you know, financially monetizing. Um, and so it's a, you know, it's a different deal. I mean, if you, if you 
just want to do straight, shallow, hey, this guy looks good on TV, and let's see if we can get him elected the same way Justin Trudeau got elected. Like, I'm not going to deny that that's a strategy. Um, but I think when the country is in the throes of God knows what, like it's liable to be this time next year, uh, like I think you're going to need more than that. Like, I really do. I think that, I, you know, I, I don't think you're going to be able to turn out the votes for the machine uh, in 24 like they were able to turn them out in 18 and 20 and 21, 22, rather. Um, now. I disagree with you, Jack. And, and, that, and the reason why I say that is because they don't need to turn it out. They just need the machine and they have a finely honed one and there's no stopping it. Yeah, but machines don't stay finely honed is the point. There have been yeah. political machines all through American history and they all collapse eventually. Yeah, maybe. And this is, look, this is a machine that began in two, 20, 2006. Yep. All right. So you're looking at year 18 of the machine in 2024. That I mean, Tammany Hall is like the only machine that lasted longer than that. And Tammany Hall didn't last all that much longer than that. So, like, I just, you know, and this comes okay. back to the thing I keep saying. I don't make any assumptions on right. what's going to happen in 2024. I just refuse to because I think there's yeah. there's 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 too much quicksand that the, that all these assumptions are built on. That's true. I mean, that is that that ultimately that is true. We're arguing over phantoms in a way, I, you know, and I'm fed up with seeing polls that are just um, not even likely vo voters that are generalized polls that mean squat. Because really, the only polls that matter are in the swing states. And right now, those look very good for Trump. But what will happen if he does get a conviction? We don't know that. So there is one unknown. And um, we don't know beyond um, that what the Democrats are actually going to do. I just believe that. But I could, I'm always wrong about these things. So you listeners take this for the grain of salt um, that something big is going to happen on the democratic side and that biden isn't going to be the guy yeah i mean I, I like i i think it would be foolish to assume otherwise i just my thing is i think right now the democrats are riding with this because they don't have a better option mm -hmm. but that's not to say that they won't ride it right into a tree um, right, right. Right. And then get yeah. stuck with Kamala Harris and then try to have, well, it's okay. We've got the machine. We'll turn the votes out and Kamala's the mm -hmm. one. And it's going to go like, for, to me, I think Gavin Newsom keeps talking, you know, oh, I'm not running and it's Kamala. Mm -hmm. I think Gavin Newsom's looking at 2028 because I think he's, I, I mean, this is my take on, on him is that he is, uh, he sees this thing collapsing and he's, seize the opportunity to then rebuild the machine in his image rather than Obama's because Gavin Newsom is that kind of an egotist that he would do that. Yeah, uh, maybe. Um, I, I don't know that he has the, the, but you know, I, I say, I was about you're to talking say about two different things at the same time. Now, yes, there's, now there's I what know. Gavin Newsom's actually capable of doing right. and there's what Gavin Newsom thinks he's capable. Of. <laughs> right. And, and, and yeah. Because ultimately, he's kind of lazy like Obama is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Bill Clinton, for all his faults, wasn't necessarily lazy and he wasn't stupid. Um, uh, but Gavin Newsom, you know, has those mo movie star looks that 
liberal women are easily entranced by. And since a good portion of them are single without a man, you know, the president is their man. So like, you know, um, yeah, okay. Mean, that, so, is, that is his asset. I don't that, know that well, he has any he, other assets, but that is his asset. The other thing is, is because does Gavin Newsom have a crew around him like Obama had or like Clinton had? Because, Obama, yeah. give, you know, Obama and Clinton had some pretty good spin meisters and fixers, mm -hmm. you know, the, the James Carvels and Dick right. Morris's and David mm -hmm. Axelrod's and those kind of like, I don't. I don't know who Gavin Newsom's people are. Well, he keeps sleeping with their wives. So like the best. <laughs> it, it tends to run off the talent. Yes, it does tend to run off the talent. I mean, the best uh, political consultant in uh, California was like Newsom's best friend and he slept with a guy's wife. Yeah. So, and then, you know, so that, uh, you know, he has run off his, um, uh, many of his supporters, but he would turn to national and there's plenty of evil national consultants who would I love to take his money. Like, I don't argue with that, but the fact that like they're not his people coming up mm -hmm. means he could very easily choose poorly. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, you know, you had 25 of them that ran in 2020. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they all, you know, they all picked up consultants, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they, they grabbed, I mean, they, they grabbed up every Democrat consultant there was. And the vast majority of them crashed and burned because their campaigns were disasters. Right. Right. I mean, look at yeah. Liz Warren and look at, you know, look at Kamala, look at, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you could just go through Cory Booker. Well, there's only so much you can do with really terrible candidates. And, and that is the problem. You know, after Obama, the bench is just kind of empty and stayed empty. No, it's awful. And so like, you know, I, to the credit on the Republican side who, you know, own all these state houses and governorships, they've done a good job. They have, you know, quite a deep team of competent people, but right. things have gotten so tribal and more than that have gotten um, so, uh, um, superficial where the issue is not is not like so where DeSantis has had trouble is getting lost in the politics of the policy and the minutiae and the voters are saying hold up we have a systemic problem here that is bigger yeah. than these policy choices that we're talking about and we need That's broad strokes from our leader not uh kind of political competence in the Romney style where you're a good bureaucrat. That, that ship has sailed. We need people willing to wreck the systems. And, and I'm not sure that Trump, by the way, is the guy who's willing to do that. Um, I'm not sure that. He, yeah. We've talked about that. I yeah. Mean, we I, have you know, talked about that. More, there's a lot more, you know, hat than cattle uh with the you know the drain the swap talk swamp talk with trump i mean like right. that's that's a real problem and it's one reason a lot of people look to desantis right you know but i mean ultimately though i you know i i'm i'm loath to offer too much criticism of desantis it's just not at this moment mm -hmm. right you got to get trump out of the way and then yeah. i think ron desantis kind of kind of floats to the top because mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, having watched these debates, 
I think he's the most presidential of the bunch, and it's not even. I don't. know. It's not even. I think Nikki close. Haley's up there, but the okay. So, oh, but she's so. Oh, you yeah. She. I mean, she, Jesus, and that 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 last debate was unbelievable with the the you know carping at at, at all these people, and particularly Ramaswamy. And every time I hear you, you I, I it feels like I get dumber, and it's like. Uh, yeah. yeah, but you're a bitch. Nobody wants to. Put oh, OK. Well, I think that your response to her is um, not necessarily the response a lot of uh, middle of the road voters have. But OK, can we talk about one other thing before we go? I just Matt Gates has been stomping around saying that he's getting rid of Kevin McCarthy for uh, Speaker of the House and is really ticked about that. Right. And I'm wondering what you think about that situation. I think Matt Gates wants to be governor of Florida. And I think Matt Gates wants to be the guy that, um, you know, come 2026 when DeSantis is, is uh, leaving office over there. I think Matt Gates wants to be the conservative choice. And mm -hmm. uh, if he's the guy who comes forward as the most, um, <clears throat> vociferous critic of Kevin McCarthy and therefore the true conservative. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that positioning works for him. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think this is all about him doing that. Um, you know, all he's got to do is get reelected one more time in Florida. And then, and then, you know, he has that. I don't think there's anything much to this. I, I didn't follow the this 45-day debt deal or uh, budget deal that they made. Um, what broad strokes I've seen out of it really don't look that bad. Mm -hmm. um, so much so that the few Republicans in the Senate who actually do care about a budget, mm -hmm. guys like Rand Paul and Matt Lee, or uh, uh, Mike Lee. Mike Lee, good Lord. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're talking about how they were going to filibuster the thing when it got to the Senate. And then they they read it over and they were like, no, we're OK with this. We'll we'll let it go. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it doesn't fund Ukraine. It does. There's a number of different things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are conservatives who are not happy about what came out of the House. They thought it was too much of a giveaway. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we always knew there was going to be a giveaway. And as giveaways go, I don't know that this is that bad. So I'm not sure what Gates is going to get out of it. Um, but, you know, he's 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 the opposition within the party. And yeah. that kind of notoriety, I think, gets you name ID and it gets you a fundraising base that mm -hmm. you can then use to run for governor of Florida. All I mean, right, well. I think that's what this is. Matt Gates is Matt Gates is about. I mean, and, and I'm not saying this is a particular criticism because this is the game that's that that you play. Matt Gates is about Matt Gates, right? And I think that this is, you know, this is. I mean, he's never going to be anything but a gadfly on the House floor, and he's made his peace with that. And so, you know, his next step is either to run for the Senate or for governor. And there's really no room for him in the Senate because Marco Rubio and Rick Scott aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Right. So the answer is governor because that's the job that's coming open. And so what you do is, you you know, you make the biggest pest of yourself that you can. Um, <laughs> and you talk about state issues in Florida, basically from here until 2026. Right. Um, 
and you know, and that's and that's it. And you know, because there's a a pretty strong streak in Florida right now, uh, you know, that's sort of anti-establishment and especially anti-Washington. Yeah. And that's basically due to DeSantis. DeSantis has set Florida up as sort of the anti-Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he says this is where wokeness comes to die, and Florida's the beacon mm-hmm. of freedom and the shining city on the hill or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the you shiny know, city in the swamp because it's all underwater, but okay. Well, the hill is man-made. Yeah, right. The dirt made a hill. It's yeah. not a big hill, but that's <laughs> not a big yeah. hill. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need a big hill for a shining city. So oh, you know what? I think you know what I'm just thinking about that. Speaking of bowls and, and being underwater, um I think we need to talk about college football for a minute before we leave today because I don't I don't want to talk about college football. I want I, but I do no. because I don't know if you noticed, but the University of Texas won. And I this is a twofer for me this weekend because University of Michigan, which and I have to confess, I grew up in Michigan, right? But I was always a Spartans fan, unless in the Big Ten, the only one who was doing well was U of M. And then I would support U of M over other teams you know how that works uh, my brother just to be obnoxious would go for ohio state i've said that before and just to rile my uncles and make everybody tick but so you and u of m was the family's team everybody but uh us who lived in lansing for a fair you know long period of time so anyway state michigan state's not doing great but u of m looked like a nfl team this weekend against nebraska and uh um, UT, they, they struggle a bit in the first half, but it came through. I don't know what's happening, um, to football in, um, in Louisiana. And I thought maybe you could explain it, Scott. Um, <laughs> bad coaches. Really? The thing is, it's like, I, well, I mean, like believe the, the, defense. the Saints, the Saints never, ever, ever should have hired Dennis Allen as the head coach. And he's proving it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I mean, they're off. I'm talking about college football. Well, I get it, but, um, that the saints are a little more palatable to talk about than Ellis. <laughs> okay. Ellis gave up 711 yards of total <laughs> offense to Ole Miss on Saturday. It was the most disgraceful defensive performance that I've ever seen. The defensive. On both sides though. That house. Well, no, no, no. LSU put up. Well, yeah, but. LSU's offense is that good, and I guess Ole Miss's is too. But nobody gives up 711 yards of of total offense in a football game. That That's, it was crazy. That was a crazy game. And, oh, and, was, and if you watch the game, it's missed tackles and blown. Oh runs. yeah. I mean, it was just it was it was not so much that Ole Miss is good on offense as that LSU's defense is a bunch of clowns running around that don't have a clue what they're doing, and that's coaching. Um, and they're paying Brian Kelly ten million dollars a year for this garbage. Yeah, uh, and he's he's got half a football team. And if that doesn't get fixed, and it won't get fixed this year, but he's going to have to clean out his entire defensive staff, and he's going to have to run off a bunch of players, or else he's going to mm-hmm. end up getting a big fat paycheck and a trip out of town because they're not mm-hmm. going to freaking they're not going to continue paying this guy ten million. They'll buy him out in the next year or two before mm-hmm. they'll finish that ten year contract with him. Yeah. Uh, if this is all he can do and and it's like they're going to get to the end of this season and they're going to go six and six or seven and five because that defense is that bad mm-hmm. and uh he's going to be immediately on the hot seat it's going to start to affect recruiting and he's going to have to completely clear his defense out and start over 
And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, what happened Saturday night was a wake up call for everybody at LSU that, hey, you're, you know, you got a lot of hype before the year mm-hmm. because your quarterback is great and your offense is really good. But that defense is going to lose you every game the offense can, you know, you think the offense is going to win. Yeah. It almost happened. It did happen against Florida State. It almost happened against Arkansas. And it's happened again at Ole Miss. And you got a whole bunch of SEC teams on the schedule who can rack up a bunch of points too. Right. Start right, with right. Missouri this weekend, who's number mm-hmm. seven in passing offense in America. Mm-hmm. And if LSU can't freaking outscore Missouri, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, they're going to be for sale signs in Brian Kelly's yard. and that has happened before in baton rouge well the thing it's happened before at every sec school but it'll absolutely yeah oh absolutely the thing is with that is i couldn't believe i mean i think you're exactly right as far as coaching goes because the missed tackles um in so many cases the the defender was there and it was just bad fundamentals and i was like it it was unwatchable yeah utterly unwatchable in fact uh you know, I mean, I, and this is my thing is I, I have gotten to the point and this is like a long time coming and I'm, I'm the biggest college football fan that you will ever run across. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm just I've finally gotten old enough that uh, like I look at this stuff and I say, I am not going to mortgage my freaking happiness <laughs> uh, and live vicariously right. through a bunch of college kids who if I met personally, I probably wouldn't like, (laughs) like, I'm just not doing it. And so, um, and this is like a realization I should have come to like a long, long, long time ago, but uh, I'm, I'm there. And frankly, it's like, you know, I turned the LSU game off and uh, you know, put on Netflix and I like, I watched uh, this, this movie reptile that has an unbelievably good cast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a murder mystery type of show. Mm-hmm. Um, Justin Timberlake and Benicio del Toro and Alicia Silverstone. Oh, is that Kurt good? Lugosian. Great, great cast. the The plot has too many holes in it for me to really recommend it, but it was it was a uh, um, it was worth watching. Put it that way. You know what I've watched over the weekend, in addition to a lot of football, was um, the. Uh, the new Elvis movie. Ah, you mean the sort of new Elvis movie? Yeah, the Tom Hanks thing. Yes. Yeah. It was so annoying. I, I watched that movie and the whale. I watched recently. I, I can't I do could, I could not get through either of those movies. They were so bad, and I was like, "Why does everybody like these?" I, I could live with the Elvis movie. Um, I mean, Austin Butler looks so much like Elvis Presley that it was, you know, that well, was, I, mean, a, he I thought, I thought that was the worst uh, role of Tom Hanks's career was him playing. Uh, was it Tom, Colonel Tom Parker? Yeah. Um, like I, I just like, he just doesn't work for that role at all for me. Um. I didn't know if it, for me, like the, the way the narrative choices and like the way the movie was structured where you could like, you couldn't follow it. And then you're jumping all over. And the the scene 
would finally get good. And then they would come away from it. I was like, what is going on here? That's, that's a Baz Luhrmann movie. I mean, that's 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 yeah. the style that Baz Luhrmann. I mean, either you like it or you don't. I, um, I, in this case, I didn't like it. Like it was, it's one thing in Moulin Rouge kind of had the same vibe. Right. Um, um, and it worked for that movie. But this movie, I was like, it, it felt like a, um, a discordant mess. There was no cohesion. And so like, and then the whale, oh my goodness, what a beat down. And I, I just, I can't, uh, I, I like I've, I've thought about, eh, maybe I should they say it's a good movie. And then I'm just like, no, I just don't really want to be that depressed. Well, it's not even, the thing is, is that like the main character who you're supposed to be sympathetic for, he's really a villain. Right. And, it's, and I didn't feel sympathy for him at the end. He, you know, it's like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You, you fucked all this stuff up. Then you ended up with this shitty life because of what you did and you're still doing and all the way to the grave you're still doing. And I get, and it's so heavy with symbolism and so obvious. And I was like, ah, it was pretentious twaddle. And so like the, that movie, I was like, I am not listening to any more recommendations. I don't watch movies very often. And so like, if I'm going to spend two hours and then if it stinks, then I feel like, okay, there it goes two hours. I can't get my life back. I could have read a book or I could have done really anything else. Um, um, so I'm gonna, uh, I, for you listeners your, out your there. Your watching I'm, habits and mine probably wouldn't. Um, align. Wouldn't match very, mesh very well because uh, 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 I watched this movie called Nowhere uh, that's okay. on Netflix. When I turn the Saints game off at halftime, I, I, I watch this. Uh, and it's it's this movie about it's kind of set in this sort of dystopian deal. And I guess it's a Spanish movie. Um, and like everybody's trying to get out of Spain because there's a, a totalitarian regime that's set in. And the deal is, uh, you know, they're trying to escape in shipping containers on ships mm -hmm. to get out. And so this woman, uh, you know, through all kinds of different things ends up, uh, alone in this shipping container that falls off a ship in a storm. Um, and it's about her trying to survive. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of a castaways type, you know, castaway type of thing, you know, like it's, it's a survival show. Would that uh, thing even float? Yeah. Like, well, not overly well, but yeah. They, <laughs> I'm like, like that's part of that's part of the thing is, it's like, you know, does this thing, managed to float enough that um that that she can survive in it uh and how does she get out and all this other kind of stuff like that but um uh so there's that but then the, the thing that really ate up my time when i decided i didn't feel like watching football anymore is this show that's on amazon prime called wilderness okay. which is about um a, this this guy who's a uh like an events manager for a hotel Mm -hmm. and his wife and they're like they're both english but they they moved to new york with his job and her deal is is she's like she's a journalist but she doesn't have like a work visa so she can't actually work and so you know he's making good money and they have a pretty nice apartment or whatever um but she finds out that he's cheating on her right mm -hmm. and so it's all about sort of the devolution of the marriage 
mm-hmm. um, into some super highly dramatic things that happen mm-hmm. um, because she just can't tolerate the fact that this guy is a cheater. Um, and it's, I would recommend it. It's, I mean, it's like, it's certainly it'll keep you interested for the whatever eight episodes of it. Um, but it's, it's extremely dark. Um, and what it says about the human condition is, you know, like really not very positive at all. Um, which I find is, you know, overwhelming when, when you start looking at like what movies and TV shows that Hollywood makes, uh, if it was one guy or gal that was writing all of these things, you'd say, this is somebody that needs to be institutionalized for Hmm. depression, right? Because they're incapable of telling a positive story anymore. It's like the only people that do that are like these churches that do movies as part of their ministry, right? It's everything that's mainstream Hollywood, everything that Netflix does, everything that Amazon Prime does, it's like horrendously, horrendously negative and dark. Um, and I'm not going to say you can't tell a good story out of that. You can. Some well, the, the thing is, is that what... seen were very dark, but it gets it... overwhelming after a while. Well, and it also it starts starts to trend to the unrealistic. You know, the where there's no light or no positive outcome like and and there's this idea that it's it's smarter i think that if it's negative and real and like that's real and raw but that's not Uh, real and i think that is i think you just hit on what is really really wrong in that industry is that the people that run it think that positivity is pollyanna-ish and stupid right and so to tell us an intelligent story that people in the industry would appreciate that it has to have a certain degree of contempt for, you know, the audience and people in general. Right. Uh, and that's the sign of a dying industry. I mean, I, I, I don't know if there's any better a sign of a dying industry than something that's that hates its customers that much. Yeah. And the thing is, is that like, even like you haven't seen it, but the whale was that way where it was so relentlessly, hopelessly terrible and had such a malign view of the world all the way down, every single character, all the everything, even the little supposed bright shining spot of the character was malignant in how she dealt with the world and the the whole thing was in in most people in most lives even people who have really difficult lives have moments of you know joy and there's relief in in their existence um because otherwise everybody would be just suicidal so like it it was just you know why why is this and even like and that really stuck out to me with the movie la la land where here you had in the 50s or 60s this movie a musical like that would have ended with the two main characters together and why not like everything in that movie was heading towards that direction. It was hopeful, right. whatever, but no, it's more real and more raw. If we make a 
if we, you know, turn that notion on its head and make these two characters um, end up negative and yeah, apart. Well, apart. I mean, I'll just, I'll redirect you to what I said two podcasts ago about how the culture is desperate to present as, as, as much as possible, you know, singlehood as, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, as the message. Right. Yeah. And La La Land is a perfect example of that. That is a chick movie. Right. And how does it end? The girl ends up single. Mm -hmm. Right. They, she doesn't get together with the guy that is the lead. Mm -hmm. Um, like this nowhere movie woman's married at the beginning and she's not married at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, and it's just, it, it's over and over and over again. You see this stuff. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's sort of the zeitgeist that they're trying to present. Um, but I don't think it's an accident is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we should end on a positive note for Texas. And since I'm in Texas. Okay. Enjoy your week, Texas. And thank you. UT won. The Texans won, which that's unexpected. And so that's like a miracle. The Astros clinched um, and have a playoff uh, berth. And that didn't come easy this year. It seemed like they were working on losing, you know, the last however many games they've been playing. Um, hopefully the bats start heating up. So it's been a good week for Texas. And, uh, um, we'll see if this continues or not. And, uh, but I just wanted to end on that happy note. Yeah. Because... Have your good week. Thank you. <laughs> I, I want to enjoy it while it lasts because it doesn't ever tend to the SEC is, um, well, you know, the college football is an unforgiving, <laughs> um, sport. So we'll see how this goes and how it, and I gotta say though, of all the teams that we watched, Michigan looked just unbeatable and um, and formidable, and that hasn't happened in a long time. So, mm. and the Lions are doing good. So I, you know, Michigan is actually doing good. So good for them that it's been a it's been a drought for the sports fans in Michigan. Um, here in Texas, not so much, but. Um, we have had, if it makes anybody feel more sympathetic, like the worst, hottest summer, and it just, can, it's relentless and continuing that we might get into the sixties this next week, which would be a miracle. So the, the, our sports team doing well, uh, it's a relief. So on that happy note, um, there you go. <laughs> and I, and I don't share it, but take what you can get, I guess. I'm going to take what I could get. Because the thing is, is the tide is very likely to turn. And Scott will be drinking the happy sauce here soon. And I will be crying in, in tears in my uh, water bottle, um, you know, when this is all over. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, hey, wait, Melissa, wait, before what? you do that, isn't there something that you want to plug to the folks that's coming up in about 10 days? Yes, actually, there is. We're having our 55th annual gala, um, the American Spectre Gala, Spectator uh, annual gala, the um, Barkley annual gala. And we have an excellent lineup. Uh, for those of you who are listening, you may not know if you this is your first time listening, but um, Aramit Sorrell Jr., 
the founder and editor of the American Spectator is going to be sitting down and talking about his memoirs, which are out now. Go buy them. On, go buy it on Barnes and Noble or Amazon, wherever books are sold. Um, if we had the video on, I would show you my copy of the book because I just got the book in the mail with an inscription from Bob. And he'll be talking about uh, his memoirs. And he's on the radio all over the place uh, talking about his book right now. And so I hope that you'll buy it. And I hope you'll come to the gala and, um, you know, support our writers. We are going to be honoring Betsy DeVos. We are going to be honoring one of our um, great writers who passed away this last year, George Newmeyer, and his whole family is going to be there and, and uh, receive an award um, on his behalf. Uh, and uh, Sebastian Gorka will be speaking at the end of the night. So it's going to be a big night and you're going to be there, right, Scott? I will be there. Yeah. So you can I will be there. talk to Scott. I will not be there. And so for those of you who are listening and wondering why, it's because my daughter happens to be getting married that weekend and rehearsal dinner, Scott, <laughs> rehearsal is the afternoon and the rehearsal dinner is the evening of the gala. So I cannot be there. Um, I didn't want to risk missing the, my only daughter's wedding because flights are so... Uh, um, unreliable this time. So I will not be at the gala, but I hope all of you will be. And you can buy tickets at spectator.org and we'll um, hopefully see you there. Indeed. So thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.